Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Hey, Sober Stories crew. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our show. Today, we're taking a different approach to storytelling in the sober space. We've only heard from folks who experience their own individual story with substances, but what we know about addiction is that it has an exponential impact. When one person struggles with substances, it touches so many of the people around them, their friends, family, their community. Today, we hear from someone who is touched deeply by that impact. I had the privilege of interviewing Shannon Van Diemen, CEO of Aspen Ridge Recovery Center based in Colorado. Though the sober story is not her own, Shannon has deep connection to the recovery community by way of her brother's addiction. This experience has fueled her, and we had a really riveting conversation about what the recovery space is getting right, what it's getting wrong, and how Shannon and Aspen Ridge are working to create change at the outset. Content warning, in this episode, Shannon shares that her brother died because of his addiction. As always, we invite you to listen to the stories that serve you, and if any of the content covered in our conversations is detrimental to your mental wellness, we invite you to join us in the next episode. After you get today's episode to listen, tag Shannon at Aspen Ridge Recovery and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories family, I am really excited to bring this conversation with Shannon Van Diemen from Aspen Ridge today. Shannon, welcome to Sober Stories. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I imagine it's prettier there in Colorado than it is here in Texas. I just got back from picking my kid up from school in 104 degree weather. How's how's the weather there? (laughs) Um, actually it's like cloudy and a little bit rainy, um, mm. but the nice thing about Colorado is if you want to change the weather, you just go up in the mountains. So you have options yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation today because I think this is going to be our first conversation with somebody who is adjacent to sobriety, who isn't necessarily in their own recovery journey, but has a connection to this space and to these stories that we tell. And mm-hmm. I think there are so many people whether or not they are sober themselves, whether or not they are on their own sober journey, have somebody in their lives who also struggles with substances or maybe mm-hmm. struggles with something else. And and we want to know what to do then. We want to know how to help them, but it's really hard unless you, you know, are kind of in it. So I'm excited to hear your story today. And before we dig in, I want to just give the audience an overview of you, who you are, where you are, what you do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, my name's Shannon. As you said, I am the CEO of Aspen Ridge Recovery. I have worked in the behavioral health field my entire career. Um, so I am a business person by training, but I've dedicated my life to this field. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll be talking about why <laughs> in a little bit here. So yeah, this has been my passion area and the area in which I've been trying to, you know, move things forward and advance things throughout throughout my career. And I'm really happy to be part of Aspen Ridge uh, and working alongside the folks here. Beautiful. And y'all are all based in Colorado, correct? Yes, we are in Colorado. We have multiple locations, one in Lakewood, one in Colorado Springs, and one in Fort Collins. Mm. Uh, And then we also do telehealth across the state as well. Okay. Awesome. I didn't realize that. So tell us what your connection to the sober field is. What is the reason this is a passion project for you? Why do you work in this space? Yeah. 
So I think uh, a lot of us, uh, if we don't have experience with it in our own lives, we have experience with it around us. Mm. For most adults to grow up and have that not be true, I think that's pretty uncommon with the prevalence yeah. that exists out there. And so, you know, my mom actually was a child of an alcoholic mm. and so came with those codependency tendencies, you know, mm-hmm. of a child who grows up in that environment. And all of her brothers, her three brothers, all became alcoholics. Mm. And then my brother became an alcoholic. So <laughs> mm. it was very, very prevalent in my family and I was around it. And it's been interesting to see not only how perceptions have changed, how the mm. conversations changed, how the field has changed, you know, but back then it was assumed that if you could like keep a job, even if you were an alcoholic, it was like fine, you know, yeah. like you could, you were a functioning alcoholic and that was fine. And that's what we do, what you would do. But the impact that it has on the entire family structure and everybody around, you know, to make that possible and to make that happen. And, you know, it it perpetuates certain things. And so Mm. for sure, my mom had untreated mental health diagnoses, you know, that uh, set up a dynamic in the family that was like extremely challenging. And for my brother, again, it's interesting to see how much the fields changed, but he for sure had Asperger's, but it was undiagnosed and Mm. that wouldn't happen today, you know? Right. And that, that lack of human connection and ability to connect led to depression and that depression led to alcoholism and self-medication that I think could have been seen and fixed and helped if he were to be a child today versus Mm. when he was a child back then. And so my brother actually passed away from alcoholism two months before I took this job. And when I transitioned from children's mental health to uh, the substance abuse field, Mm. uh, kind of in honor of him and like, we've made great strides here. Let's see what we can do now (laughs) in Mm. this other area. So there you go. Mm. That's what brought me here. I'm so sorry for your loss. How long ago was that? January 24th of 21. Mm. Oh, so very recently. Mm. Yeah. Very recently. Yeah. How has it been to transition into the field, having such a deep connection with that and having that loss and in that sense of trauma to be then working in the field? Yeah, it's interesting. I think for a long time, substance use field has been separate from the mental health field and they're working on bringing those together, but it is kind of still outside of and adjacent in a lot of ways. And so I think having had the opportunity to spend so many years within mental health, I see opportunities to bridge the divide (laughs) and to like pull, pull in, you know, in Mm -hmm. other ways um, that hasn't necessarily happened yet. I suppose the exciting thing about it is that it's like dynamic and changing, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's always something going on, but yeah, I mean, I think the really cool thing about being here is to see people who recover. And to mm-hmm. see that recovery is possible because there was no one in my family. They either didn't seek it or they weren't effective at mm-hmm. realizing that in their own lives. And to work alongside and with people that have succeeded in that and what that looks like for them and to get to be part of their journey is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that so many, so I'm, I'm personally sober and I think so many of us in this space realize what could have been and what our lives might look like otherwise. And when you have that really personal tie to it, whether it's yourself or a family member or a loved one, it takes on a different flavor, I've found, because it's it's so deeply personal and so vital because you've you've really seen the firsthand impacts of that. Have you found that that has either strengthened or made work harder for you as you work in this space? I think that sometimes the things that we're trying to do to improve 
treatment and you run into things like insurance company bureaucracy mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. I mean, it feels more personal. The, the emotion associated with it and the frustration is larger because the sense of urgency and the understanding of the impact is much closer and not something mm. theoretical, but something that's much more tangible and much more real. But I do think that it leads to a passion and mm. a vision that are the things that are going to, you know, push reform where it needs to happen in order for us to be able to provide people with what they need. Can I ask what your passion and vision is? Uh, you know, it's interesting. The For a long, long time, we've been fighting for parity with the belief <laughs> that, like, if we could just be treated equal to, like, the medical field or the physical health field, that we will have, like, reached the, you know, <laughs> promised mm-hmm. land. And so there's been all of this for parity. But the truth is, is that it's not the same. And so yeah. a lot of the trying to bring this forward to that type of a system versus actually understanding the complex integrated (laughs) human beings that we are and that a lot of the things that would actually yield change certain things like connection and meaningful Mm -hmm. relationships and housing stability (laughs) and you know base level things aren't services that are like provided on a payment schedule um right and can't so, code for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so there's there's like there's immediate things around this is what we need to do within the treatment field, but then there's the bigger societal cultural thing that we need to do in understanding the importance of human connection and mm-hmm. the way that we're setting things up to foster that to help prevent a lot of these things from happening anyways. Hmm. You know, I think that's a really interesting thought because when you first said parody, my my first instinct was like, yes, yes, we need that Mm -hmm. parody. And I think even I I come from a therapy background. So even in the mental health field, we are still seeking parity with the medical field. And then to step back and think the recovery space, also seeking parity with the mental health field. At first, my brain was like, yes, but you're so right that there's so many interconnected things that go into addiction, into substance use that are not just things that are diagnosable. They're not just things that you can put on an insurance bill or give a prescription for. So you mentioned this idea of being able to see what you see now and see the success that you see now with the people you work with and all of the things that are helping people that maybe your brother or your mom's brothers that didn't have, they didn't have access to that then. What are some of the things that you see as being really integral to somebody being able to recover? First, you need to like, I mean, from a societal perspective or an individual perspective, I think it, you know, there's probably different answers. So, Mm -hmm. you know, from a societal perspective, we need to continue to address the issue of stigma and the blame culture and the shaming culture around this and get it to a point where people feel okay to ask for Mm -hmm. help, which I see more of that happening in mental health than what has happened in substance use. Um, I mean, the amount of attention on mental health in the last couple of years compared to what it was, you know, 20 years ago when I started this is remarkable and the amount of investment and understanding in that. But there's still this real shame and blame around substance use thinking you're just weak. It's a lack of willpower. Mm -hmm. You should just like, decide. And so I think it keeps people from trying to access care and the amount of gap 
between when they could or should be seeking care and when they actually do mm-hmm. is substantial. And so I think from that perspective, we need to continue to work on education and advocacy and helping people understand, you know, the progression and how it gets to be to this point and that people can succeed. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that think someone could never get better. And I think mm-hmm. that telling stories of recovery like you're doing is like hugely important <laughs> that is possible and that, it, you know, that there's hope available to them. Um, you know, for the individual in terms of success, I, I do think, you know, we've found that the presence of strength within you. So having some like protective factors or resiliency is more predictive of success than the absence of needs. And so having a community that supports you, having connections that are there for you, having hobbies that you're interested in, having, you know, these type of positive things for you to engage in are the things. And so our entire medical system is set up in this deficit based way. Here's what's wrong with you. And we have to code specifically what's wrong with you in order to actually treat you and to make you better when we might be better served to like help them get engaged in something that they cared about as a teenager that they haven't done in a long time, but no one's going to pay us to do that. (laughs) But you know, that type of positive interaction and feeding, you know, of the spirit in that way has been shown in research to be more predictive of success. Mm. And so I think it's about helping people build their resiliency and build those protective factors around them as much as possible while helping them work through the hard things, sure. But we do know that building that resiliency is one of the most important things we can be doing. You know, one of the ways we speak about it in in kind of the sober space online is creating a life that you don't need to escape from and having mm-hmm. that fulfillment and having connection and purpose and all of those things. I like this phrasing of protective factors. You know, one of the things that you said that really struck me is all of the people out there who think it's just simply a choice that you could just be stronger, have willpower, choose not to to yeah. use the substance or whatever. What do you say to to people when there's that idea of, well, just, just do better? Yeah. I mean, my dad still feels this way to this mm. day and the number of times he said that to my brother over the years and just still doesn't understand, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something that happens over time. It's not like you wake up one day and you end up, you know, in, in the space that you're in needing to move into recovery and needing to move into that level of healing. There are all these opportunities for intervention, you know, Mm -hmm. along the way that are missed and people get to a point where they're using substances to self medicate and they're doing it because there's something else that was like, not great, you know, Mm -hmm. in their life. And you need to go and you need to address that. So you can't just like willpower your way out of that. You need to like have caring people around you that are working with you to help figure out like, what is that? And what Mm -hmm. is it that we need to like help you with? And, you know, to give them different tools and ways of dealing with things than what they've had before. And so there's learning and processing and change and all those other things that need to happen that it isn't just like, Oh, just stop. And everything's going to be, fine. That's a really mm-hmm. overly simplistic view and um, not setting that person up for success. Frankly. Yeah. And, you know, I, when I think about the history of the recovery field and, and how we have slowly tiptoed towards more of an understanding of what actually creates addiction and, and why somebody has challenges substances and we're starting to get a better idea and we're starting to get away from the moral failing concept, but we're still kind of in it. 
I know that you've mm-hmm. been in this space, in the mental health space specifically for quite some time. What have you seen as like the progression of how we view challenges with substances over the years? Well, I don't think we've had as much progression as we have in mental health. Mm-hmm. I still think that the moral judgment mm-hmm. is still very prevalent and there's an assumption of weakness and it is an attributable characteristic. We did used to see this in mental health. It was always interesting to me. I would say, you know, we would say that someone has cancer, mm-hmm. but then we would say someone is a schizophrenic or they are an alcoholic. All of a sudden we're like, you are embodying the characteristic as something that you are rather than something that you have. And that's simple of language and the way that we talk about it pushes that belief down, you know, the road. And so that's where we need to start challenging people and pushing back and help them understand that it isn't really any different than cancer or any Mm -hmm. other diagnosis that you could get. It's something that you have and it's something that we're going to like work with you to help you figure out how to live with as with Mm -hmm. any doctor (laughs) for anything, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think we do have some of those advances being made, but we have a really, really long way to go. You know, and I'm, I am kind of on the ground in the space, I guess, if you will. And and I know you are as well, but in this new wave of online connection, we're really starting to see a larger percentage of people who are deciding to change before they ever hit rock bottom, before they ever Mm. have some sort of outward consequence before there's ever some sort of accident or something horrible happening. And a lot of people are starting to opt out of specific language too. So you're starting to hear more people use sober or alcohol-free or just a non-drinker and you know, really starting to expand our language. And I think what you spoke about, this idea of a person who has substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder, or that person first language is is so key because in my opinion, it, it opens more doors. It gives more people access mm-hmm. to making a positive change in their life. And I know that really this idea of changing something before rock bottom is one of the things that y'all talk a lot about at Aspen Ridge. So what are y'all doing to really help people understand that they can make changes in their lives before they ever hit rock bottom before anything of like major substance or consequence happens. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. And talking to you is one of the ways that we are wanting to start to have this conversation, but this isn't like a, it's on a continuum, right? It's Mm -hmm. not like you like are abusing substances or you don't use them. (laughs) Like there's a whole continuum there, but we seem to like want to categorize people in all areas of life, this just being one of them, Mm -hmm. um, where we want to say this is what it is. And it's interesting because our field is pretty old school in a certain (laughs) respect. We're kind of back at, you know, Nancy Reagan's just say no Mm -hmm. (laughs) approach to things. And the the number one, you know, hit on our website is I drink a bottle of wine every night. Am I an alcoholic? There's like a real lack of understanding out there about well, what's too much and when should Mm -hmm. I be concerned and what's the responsible use and how do I know if I have a problem? How do I know Mm -hmm. if the person beside me has a problem? What can I do about that? And so I think, you know, this idea of rock bottom is more apt to happen in the absence of information. And Hmm. if we're not educating people and we're not giving them information so that they know like, oh, I might be getting into, you know, dangerous territory here or, oh, there, there should be some concern, you know, mm-hmm. about this. So maybe I should do something. 
like I don't think we're giving you know society in general those tools and most of our field isn't because yeah. we have this really strong abstinence based message which mm-hmm. for certain populations makes sense like if you've gotten to a point of chemical dependency there's like phys- physiological changes in your body mm. then that is you know the best path for you but there's a point when you aren't at that point, Mm. you know, you know, before you get to that point that had you had information, you might never have gotten to that point. Mm -hmm. And so I've started to say, why can't we start having those conversations? Why don't we start putting that information out there? And I know it's a little bit controversial and not aligned, you know, with a lot of other centers out there, but I liken it to, you know, teaching people about reproduction and, Mm -hmm. you know, how to have safe sex. And Mm. it is sometimes a thing that people have feelings on. And while you might want to have an abstinence based message there, you can Mm -hmm. also say, but here's if you're going to do it, here's how you keep Mm -hmm. yourself safe. And so clearly it's safer for all of us to abstain. That's like the safest thing that anybody can do. We know that that's not what people do. Right. <laughs> There's a vast quantity of people that choose to engage in this. So we should try to give them information to help them make informed decisions and to be able to monitor themselves and the people around them. And so I think that is some of what we want to start to put out there. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a perfect comparison. I also grew up as a kid in Texas public school system. So when you talk about this comparison between sex education, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I learned in school too. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all went and lived our lives. Mm-hmm. So this idea of, of an understanding of education, of informed consent, like you said, it bucks up against kind of that abstinence approach. And I think that we're starting to get a better understanding of the conversation or the need for conversation around, all right, here's the facts, here's the information. And if I think about what I was taught when I was younger, I was, I was a dare kid. I grew up a child of the Mm nineties. And so, you know, we were taught that it was, you know, kind of Nancy Reagan, here's your brain on drugs, all that stuff. But it was very, yeah, fear-based. It was very, you're going to get a DUI or you're going to go get pregnant and ruin your life or all of these really negative consequences. But I was never taught about how it might impact my mental health or it might, you know, impact Mm -hmm. my fertility or, or any of these physiological changes that could happen inside my body or inside my mind or my spirit. And I think that, you know, Who's to say if somebody had told me that when I was, you know, 15, maybe I still would have gone and done the same thing. But I think we're still really lacking a informed consent around what we're consuming. Yeah. And we start consuming at a really young age. And then the habit is mm-hmm. placed, the habit is formed, and then it gets strengthened over time. So that's kind of a monumental task that y'all are taking on. How do you maintain the motivation to keep sharing this to to have this mission when that's kind of a behemoth? I, I think it's important to just be having the conversation and to start Mm -hmm. to get people to think about it differently. I mean, we're planting the seed and if you can get other people to like, Oh yeah, you know, that makes sense. And they start planting seeds. And so it is this like thing that hopefully will gain momentum and more and more people will get, you know, engaged in this type of conversation because yeah, I love your use of the word informed consent. I think we're opting into things in the absence of information and there's been a belief that that's somehow protective. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yes. um, and I, I don't think that it is protective. I, I think you can have the message that abstinence is the safest thing to do. 
and here's mm-hmm. all the reasons why. And you can also say, if you're going to opt out of that, here, mm. here's the information. Here's the potential yeah. consequences. Here's how to monitor. Here's how to know so that people are acting with that intentionality and mm. knowledge and, you know, can, can make better decisions. So, yeah, mm-hmm. no, it is it is a monumental task. Mm. And I probably would feel like it wasn't possible had I not seen what's happened in mental health over the last 20 mm. years. Yeah. A lot of people coming together, saying the same thing for a long time and starting to see this tipping point happening is pretty cool. And so I think mm. now might be like a really good time for us to be having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of yeah. the things that I wanted to ask you today as somebody who is adjacent to recovery sobriety to, to this addiction space, one of the questions I get all the time is from a loved one who says, somebody in my family, my partner, my sister, my best friend, I think they're drinking too much. I don't know what to do about it. How do I help them? And I have my own thoughts as somebody who was the person who was drinking too much and who was the person who needed help and intervention. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious what your thought is as both a clinician, but also somebody who's experienced that personally. Well, that's funny because I was going to say this is when I would phone a friend, which would be a clinician because I'm an MBA. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So so I know about the field, but I'm not very good at individual treatment okay. for individual um, people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do know that we have family members call us with exactly that. You know, they'll mm-hmm. call and they'll say, I am concerned about. And so almost any facility that you call, Aspen Ridge being one of them, is prepared, you know, with the right mm-hmm. people to answer the phone, to have that conversation with you, to ask you some questions, to figure things out, to give you ideas of next step to give you resources, things that you can read, things that you can look into, even some amount of here's how we would suggest you would try and have this conversation, you know, with your loved Mm -hmm. one. There's all kinds of support out there for that individual that's feeling that way. So more than anything, I would encourage them to reach out, you know, Mm -hmm. phone a friend, so to speak, um, Mm -hmm. and have that conversation and see if you can get some information that helps you figure out where to go next. And personally, how do you have a piece of self-preservation when you are the loved one, when you are the person who has somebody they care about and they see them struggling with addiction? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really hard. I mean, watching my brother for years and then watching what that did to my parents and then, you know, the upset that I felt about not only what I was going through as the sibling, but the upset that I felt at looking at what my parents were doing and having to deal with and the impossible positions they were being put in and decisions that they were having to try and make. Like, am I really going to allow him to be homeless? Like, Mm. do I do that? You know, like these are like gut wrenching decisions that you are facing. And the truth is, is you can't save someone from themselves. They Mm. have to want it for themselves. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the hardest things I think to accept. And so to stay open and be like, if you ever want to change your life, I'm here for you. But if this is what you want to do, I like can't be part of that. I think is Mm. one of the hardest things that people struggle with in terms of doing that. And I know both of my parents put themselves in positions that they were upset about and, you know, regretted later because it didn't help. You know, in the end, it didn't didn't help. Yeah. Mm. You know, and that's kind of my answer too, is you can't, you couldn't tell me nothing for sure. I, my mom will tell the story of right before I quit drinking, she 
was over and it was a long story of I had lost a friend and she was watching my baby with me while we were going through that. And I remember staying up late drinking. That was my MO. I'd stay up late drinking. And she came out of her guest bedroom at two in the morning and saw me pouring another glass of wine and locked eyes with me. And I just looked at her and I said, don't. And she Mm -hmm. went back into her room, went to sleep. We never talked about it. And then six months or so after I quit drinking on my own, she said, you know, that really scared me. And I had decided that the next time I saw you, I was going to tell you that you needed to quit drinking. And, you Mm -hmm. know, at this point in time, actually, it was probably more than six months after I quit drinking at that point, but it was, it was some time. And I said, you know, I'm really glad that you didn't in that instance, in that specific scenario, because I know myself, I would have burned it all down. And that's myself, you know, that's Mm -hmm. my, the way I was when I was over drinking and I was using the substance, but I, I see it also happen a lot. There's so much resistance and that denial and that the person often always already has a decent amount of like self-loathing and that, that mental Mm -hmm. dialogue. And it's just really hard to bridge that gap. But I, I try to tell people to, love them how they can and mm-hmm. have boundaries for yourself. Because like you said, mm-hmm. in the end, you can only go so far and there's so many things that you can and can't do to change anything. So that's, I appreciate mm-hmm. your, your insight on that from the other side of that as well. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the future. Like where, where, where do you see us headed? Where do you think we are getting things right in the recovery space, what y'all are doing at Aspen Ridge, what is like exciting about what you see in the field? Yeah, I think there is more of an understanding that there are a lot of ancillary things going on in people's lives that matter. I mean, at least in, you know, the physical health space, they talk about the social determinants of health. And it is understanding that like if you don't have a place to live and you don't have food, <laughs> you don't have whatever, yeah. like it's, you can't focus on. Yeah. And so I think understanding that and starting to like develop means to like support people in having those things so that we can work on that. I think, you know, the recognition of, you know, the the integration, the fact that we're integrating the fields of mental health and Hmm. the substance use field is an understanding of the relation Mm -hmm. that they're not distinct, that they're interrelated, I think is like a really good step in the direction. I think we're seeing you know, more investment in these areas and more conversation in these areas and more interest. So Mm -hmm. I think there are opportunities. You know, if you look at, you know, the CARES Act, there was a ton of money put out there to address these things. And, you know, the state of Colorado just passed a whole bunch of, you know, bills for innovation around a whole Mm -hmm. lot of areas. And so I think it is kind of an exciting time. That said, all of that is focused on once somebody has a diagnosable, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, need. And so I, I think what we're not doing and where we need to go and, you know, and that's what we do at Aspen Ridge. We, we serve people who are, you know, seeking recovery and on the recovery journey. And so clearly understand the need for that, believe in that, advocate for that, fight to make that as like effective as it can be. Mm-hmm. But the conversation we were having earlier about how are we giving people information how are we challenging the cultural norms that exist within society that are preventing us from connecting with people in authentic and meaningful ways that are mm. leading to this pandemic of loneliness and isolation? And mm. I mean, it makes no sense. We've got people sitting next to each other in their houses, lonely and not talking. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's so many simple ways that we can reach out to one another and 
start to bridge that gap that will not only enrich your life, but might change or save somebody else's. Hmm. And trying to push that forward so that the need <laughs> for these services diminishes over hmm. time. I think one of the other things that's really cool about this particular field that I don't think I really ever appreciated until I, I made the switch. One of the best things that we've ever seen in terms of a recovery model that didn't take insurance, that didn't require, you know, I know this thing, mm-hmm. the fact that we had AA, peers helping peers mm-hmm. in the absence of like, frankly, people with advanced degrees sitting around the yes. table with you and understanding how much of this can be impacted through authentic sharing and connection yeah. with other people that believe in you and support you. And it's the most effective model of healthcare <laughs> I think I've ever seen. And so I think it's taking that idea that costs nothing and is us helping each other and expanding it in, in a larger way to deal with a lot of these feelings that people have that they don't know what to do with that are like creating this epidemic mm. of a behavioral health crisis that we see in our country. That's fascinating. I, I, I'm trying to wrap my brain around what that would even look like, but I like the concept. Yeah. I mean, some of it, like I said, is just as simple as like the neighbor that you see next door that yeah. isn't talking to anyone, like trying to get people to like step up and do that. Cause bro, you know, that person could change your life too. Yeah. So some of it is just trying to get people to do small things to build connection. And hmm. you never know that one thing that you said to someone, the difference that it could make, you know, hmm. in their life. And so I think at a small level, we start, we start there. Yeah. And if we start to grow that seed and that culture and that approach to being with mm-hmm. one another as humans um, and supporting each other on this journey, which is not easy, mm-hmm. <laughs> we would see a lot of this diminish. I love that. And a lot of my, the work that I do in, in this space is rooted in shame resilience and what we know about how we heal shame and how we overcome shame. And the, mm-hmm. the number one answer to that is connection. It's connecting with other people yeah. and being seen and seeing other people in all of their flaws as well and understanding kind of like the yoga philosophy of namaste, which is the light in me sees the light in you and understanding that the root of everything is, is this idea of connecting and of being seen together. Shannon, Mm -hmm. I think that this is amazing. I love the work that y'all are doing there at Aspen Ridge and really appreciate from my side of it, this idea of like, how do we get more information out to people? How do we help people understand this better before there is a need for intervention? How do we prevent this in any form and fashion? And so I just really appreciate the work that y'all are doing there. For people who are listening and want to connect with what y'all are doing, um, how can they connect with the folks over there at Aspen Ridge? Yeah, so I think probably the easiest thing is to just go on the web and look at mm-hmm. AspenRidgeRecovery.com. You'll have all the information on there so that you can contact us if you need help, have a loved one that needs help, and we're here to help you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much yeah. for your story and for sharing the story of your brother. I just really appreciate the vulnerability you had here and also the vision you have for this field. I think it's really wonderful and it's going to make a big change in the world. Yeah, thanks so much for your time and allowing us to talk about it at conversations like this that are going to help us achieve that vision. So thank mm. you so much. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Shannon Van Diemen of Aspen Ridge. 
A big thank you to the other folks over there at Aspen Ridge, especially Megan and Whitley. We are big fans of what they're doing for the recovery field and are so glad they could join us for this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.